can always make more money, but you can't get somebody's life back. You can't fix a relationship that's ruined necessarily. That was his thing, which is it's not the money, it's the money, which is the money itself is meaningless. Instead, it represents something. And that's kind of a ch- becomes a choice. The key to life is to care, but not that much. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another fascinating conversation. This week, we talked to Rich Cohen. Before we get into this conversation, I'd like to ask a favor. I know I ask this often, but I mean it. If you can do me a favor, if you can spare just a few minutes and head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, it would really help. All right, so who is Rich Cohen? Well, he is an author of 14 books, the author of New York Times bestseller books, Tough Jews, Monsters, Sweet and Low, When I Stop Talking, You'll Know I'm Dead, The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones, and The Chicago Cubs, A Story of a Curse. He is the co-creator of the HBO series Vinyl and contributing editor to Vanity Fair and The Rolling Stones. During this conversation, I wanted to ask him if he interacted with Bruce Springsteen during his days with Rolling Stones, but we never got to it. So Rich, maybe round two is needed to talk about Bruce Springsteen and if you've had any interactions with him. Uh, Rich has written for all major publications, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper Magazine, amongst many other publications. He's won tons of awards for his writing. He's a prolific writer and, as I mentioned, 14 books. Rich is an interesting individual, and it was a delight to talk to him today on the podcast. We talked about so many different things, from how he told Mark Messier off. It's an interesting story. Then we talked about his book around hockey and how our society, whether it's in hockey or many other things, including money, often have this fear of being left behind. And we talk about the negative impacts that this has on our lives and even our money relationship. We talk a lot about fatherhood because a lot of our conversation centers around Rich's newest book, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, The World's Greatest Negotiator. Rich had the pleasure of writing a new book about his father and his father's impact that he had on this world. It is heartwarming to hear Rich's admiration towards his father. As a father myself, I told Rich that I feel like a success in life would be if my kids thought and felt that way to me when they're adults. We go into how Herbie was this principled rebel to borrow Todd Cashton's term out of the book Art of Insubordination because as you can hear, Herbie was this principled rebel where he's questioning authority. In a time where negotiation wasn't a thing, he came out with this popular book that sold over a million copies about the world's greatest negotiator. And it's interesting how Herbie frames his view on we're all negotiating in everything that we do. Well, pretty well. 
We talk about the wisdom behind how and why you can negotiate anything, realizing that power is only a perception. I thought that was a really interesting part of this conversation. And we really go into this theme that Herbie has, is that we want to care about things, but the secret to life is to care, but not that much. And I think that applies to so many aspects, especially when it comes to our relationship with money, as it really helps us to prioritize or identify the things that really do matter in our lives. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rich Cohen. Thank you so much for joining me, Rich. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk. So we, we started talking about hockey. I'm in Edmonton and hockey is, is a bit of a thing over here. And I was wondering where to start. I mean, you have 14 books, numerous New York Times bestsellers. I want to get to those, but I first want to start with hockey. As I said, I grew up in Edmonton. We love the Oilers. Right now, our hopes and dreams are that the Oilers can actually make it past the first round of playoffs. The Oilers are a big deal around here. We're very proud of many players, especially one named Mark Messier. And in fact, we have a road that we named after Mark Messier because he was born in St. Albert, which is close to Edmonton. Earlier this year, we, we, I went to a hockey game with my son who's six and he wore my childhood Mark Messier jersey and it was great. Everyone was like, oh, Messier, this little jersey, it was wonderful. But I was wondering, is it true that you once told Mark Messier to fuck off? <laughs> well, not, per- not to <laughs> his face exactly, I was sort of kidding, which was, I was a coach of my older son, he's now 20, I guess yeah, he's about 21. I was a coach of his squirt hockey team there were like a lot of parents who were kind of know-it-alls about hockey, even though a lot of them didn't play hockey growing up. It was like a whole contingent of these parents. And uh, we went to play a game in West Hartford, Connecticut, and they were all talking and they went out of the locker room and they filed back and they all were pale and looked scared. And I asked them what had just happened. It was like they'd seen a ghost. And one of them said, the other team is coached by Mark Messier. And they were completely, you know, freaked out. And we went out, we played, and we rang up a bunch of quick goals, you know. And I got so excited, I called my wife on my phone from the bench, which isn't allowed. Mark Messier's kid was on that team, Doug Messier. I said, I'm coaching against Messier, and I'm going to win. I am <laughs> going to beat Mark Messier. And then uh, a kid in our team scored like the fourth goal. We were ahead by four goals. And then he did this massive little kid. But he did like an, a whole ice-consuming celebration. Uh, that was like something like Dorothy Hamill routine from the Olympics. It was out, outrageous. And I think he pointed to everybody on the other team. And he obviously bugged Messier, who called the timeout, made some changes. Some players were sitting, came in, and his son, who had been playing defense, moved up to center. And we ended up losing by five or six goals. Uh, and on the way out, I was, it was like a Sunday night. It was dark at like five in the afternoon. I had to drive home for two hours. It was freezing cold. I had a Honda Odyssey. And I was trying to get everything to fit in the back. I couldn't get it. And suddenly I felt this like little machine come up next to me. It sounded like a jet plane. And I looked over his Messier in some like Lamborghini or something, some very low to the ground, incredibly fast, incredibly cool car. And I looked over at him. He gave me a peace sign. 
And then I was like, fuck you, Messi. <laughs> yes, you're better. Yes, your kid's better than my kid. Yes, you're better than me. Yes, your hockey team's better than our hockey team and you have a better life. Just go about your business. <laughs> I love Mark Messier too. That's like the real reason I started to be a fan of the Rangers. I'm not from, I'm from Chicago. I'm really a Blackhawks fan, but I moved here to work just as they got Messier in like 93 or whatever year it was. And I watched them put together that team with a lot of Edmonton Oilers staff and people and win the Stanley Cup. And because then I couldn't see the Blackhawks on TV, because but I could see the Rangers. And those guys were around in the city. So I became a Rangers fan. So now I just kind of root for him. I wonder uh, if he looked over to his coaches and said his famous, we will win this game <laughs> against you. <laughs> well, when they when he wanted to be coach of the Rangers, everybody's like, well, he has no coaching experience. I'm like, that's not true. Yeah. He does have coaching experience. <laughs> and he beat me. Yeah. Your book, Peewee's Confessions of a Hockey Parent. I really enjoyed it. And someone who has been immersed in hockey my entire life, my, my dad was a, a hockey coach. He coached with actually Mike Babcock and other NHL coaches. And so hockey was a, a big thing in our household. And it, the underbelly of this, this book, I really hear this messaging coming out that there are some things in hockey and life that you can measure, these tangibles that the scouts look for or who can shoot the hardest, the skills competition, so things. But I get this, this idea that there's this messaging that you have that there's more to this game and it's kind of getting ruined to some degree of the obsession over these skilled things that we can tangibly see and ignoring the, all the intangibles that we can't see. Well, it's an obsession of mine and it's, and it's an obsession because it's not just hockey. It's mm -hmm. everything. It's college, you know, because our kids are going to college now. The exams, what they measure on. Basically, you can only judge on what you can measure. And the most important things cannot be measured. So if they can't be measured, it's like they, they don't exist and they disappear. And anybody who's been around kids' sports, and hockey's a very good example of it, can see it. Because they have these tryouts where they have hundreds of kids. They've never seen them play. Some of them, they don't know who they are. And they're measuring them on speed, their edges, how they make turns, and even on skill and like a tryout. But you never really find out who the good hockey players are until you get like you go on a tournament that's like seven games. They've lost four games in a row and only two kids are still playing and everybody else has quit. Those two kids who are still playing are the kids that are the hockey players and they're the ones you want. And it cannot be measured. You can only find out in the course of experience. And a lot of that stuff gets lost in a lot of the great hockey players and also the great college students or whatever it is gets lost. And it drives me crazy. And I'm, I'm I said, I'm from Chicago. I'm a Bears fan. And the Chicago Bears had this great team, which I wrote a book about, which was the 85 Chicago Bears that won the Super Bowl. And that entire team, I mean, their starting quarterback was this guy, Jim McMahon, who had a bad arm, was slightly overweight, was a nut. You know, and any measurement, he wouldn't, if they had the, the NFL combine where they test these guys in the same way, he wouldn't have been picked probably in the first round. He was, I think, the number one or number two overall pick. And he's like the greatest modern quarterback the Bears had because he couldn't do this and he couldn't do that. But all he could do was find ways to score points when they needed points every single time. And he won like 28 games in a row that he started. So that could never be measured. You know, and one of the Bears guys told me when your best players are also your best people, you have a good team. 
And that best people thing can't be measured. And since then, the, I watched the Bears, they measure, they go to the combine where they measure skills and they draft teams based on the combine. And they have one failure after another because they have guys who are great athletes, but they're not really football players. And I'd see the same thing in hockey, which is you'd see these teams put together and the teams were all wrong. And you knew it as a parent who watched these kids because they didn't pick the kids who really loved hockey. I mean, the first thing is they have to love to be there. They have to love to go there and they have to want to play. So you'd have kids who had you know great athletic skills or they were big, but their parents were making them play and they didn't want to. And they dragged everybody else down. So I really felt like hockey was like a microcosm which of the whole kind of meritocracy or whatever you call it, which is the only count of things that you can measure and you can't measure most important things. So we end up with these kind of terrible situations and bad experiences. Yeah. I, I just found that such an insightful perspective from your book and how it touches so many other aspects of our lives. A lot of times on this podcast, uh, not a lot of times it's, we talk about impacts of money and the outcomes of those impacts. And I, I couldn't help but think about money in this case that, we spend our lives chasing money, accumulating money. You talk to someone and they're like, oh, my net worth is this, or I have this much, I make this much money. Very similar in those those edges or those slap shots, who can turn the best kind of gets perceived as the best. But to your point, they're not always the best person. And with money, I see this all the time is that we're spending our time, our finite time chasing after these things, these tangible things. But often the intangible is left behind and sometimes people are miserable. Sometimes people are unhappy with what they're doing because they're just trying to get these tangible things that we feel are important because that's what the narrative around society is. So whether it's money, hockey, or other aspects of our lives that this comes into effect, what do you think is the root cause of this fear of us all feeling like we're left behind or we don't want to be the outcast? That's the key which is I feel like there's been a change and it probably has to do with the fact that the society isn't as prosperous or growing as quickly as it once was. I don't know. I'm not an economist and I'm not smart enough. But when I was a kid, I felt like the desire was always, you're driven by the desire to succeed and to get to the next level and to do well. And now when I get to watch my kids, I feel like the desire, the fear, it's more fear, the fear of being left behind. And it was the parents as much as the kids. The parents were afraid if their kids didn't make the top team, their own status was going to go down and they were going to lose access to their friends. And money is the thing because you said money. A lot of the things I'm talking about are teachable. So you have kids that parents pour money into extra coaches and all this other stuff. and they But they kind of drive their kids into the ground because they lose, they lose the love of the, the sport. But it's sort of like when there, there's less and less out there, you got to fight more not to be left behind. And it's all these series of cuts. As far as I go, I realized that, okay, a lot of people make a lot more money than me. And that's always going to be the case. I mean, a lot more. I found out yesterday that a deli I go to, that the deli guy makes, the guy who does them as slicer, makes like $200,000 a year or something outrageous like that. So now he's an artist, I get it, but still it seems like a lot of money to slice me. So once you accept that and you find you can sort of, base your own life around the amount of money you do have, as long as you have a reasonable amount of money, like enough to live, then you can, you can give up that fear of not having as much as other people. See, that's like part of the fear. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're measuring yourself against everybody else, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of like, it's this thing to keep accumulating. I think it's kind of an illness actually. 
And my father, because my new book's about my father, one of the reasons I wanted to play hockey as a kid is my father was a basketball coach. And I did not want to play his sport because he was an intense coach who I saw him tie my brother's right arm behind his back for like a week to develop his left. You know, like I didn't want to. And, and it was great because my dad would never come to hockey games because he didn't know anything about it. And he was working. And I would say he only came to two hockey games in my whole entire life. And he yelled the same thing both times. Both times I'd been knocked down. And both times he yelled, get up, you're not hurt. <laughs> that was the extent of his involvement. And he was separated by the glass and he didn't really care. But he had a thing where he said, we're talking about money. He always said, it's not the money, it's the money. So by which he meant, it's like what the money represents. And, mm. you know, it becomes separate from what it actually can do or can't do. And right now, money's so weird because of inflation plus you know, the Bitcoins and everything, it's not even 100% clear to people what money is. You just know that you want more of it. The problem is when you get it, you realize it's not really what you want anyway. And that you keep driving to get more and more because it never makes you happy. Yeah, I really, really want to get into your father here and the, the new book. I believe while I was doing some background reading here, your father talked about not being fixated on a particular outcome or detaching ourselves. And the, what you're just talking about there makes me think of this idea of, it seems to me that we have a hard time detaching ourselves, whether it's from money and that outcome that once I get that money, I'm going to be the most happiest person in the world where the research is usually against that or the detachment. If my kid makes the rep team, I'm going to be extremely happy. So right. what did your dad teach you about, or what lessons did you learn from this idea of being detached from something and not being fixated on a specific outcome? Well, my father wrote this huge book when I was a kid called You Could Negotiate Anything. And my book's about him. It's called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen because he learned to negotiate growing up as a kid in Brooklyn, all these crazy adventures and misadventures he got into. And when he wrote his book, came out in 1981, I think, negotiation was something people feared. Either they, they didn't know how to do it, they still are that way, they didn't want to do it, or they thought there was something wrong about it. It was like haggling, mm -hmm. something gross about it. So he was trying to say, look, you have, might have this fear of negotiating, but you're doing it all the time. Whether or not you realize it, every time you deal with your kid who wants to take your car or something, that's, you're involved in negotiating. And his lesson was about being detached. So his famous expression that I've tried to live by, and as a hockey parent, is, the key to life is to care, but not that much. Mm. Right from the beginning, he always said, if you approach life like it's a game, then you will have a better life and you'll be more successful at, at the actual game. So that means kind of playing kind of loose. And one of his other things is you really can't, very bad negotiating for yourself. And that's because you care too much and you lose sight that it's a game. So one of his things is you go into a negotiation, not I want this, but, you know, maybe that's a goal, but you see what happens because sometimes you get something different and it's better or different than when you originally thought. And the same is true with the hockey, with the youth hockey, because we all want our kids to make these teams, but it's not necessarily the best thing for them. We don't know what the best thing is. There's no way to know what's going to happen. That's his thing, which is have fun, approach life like a game, and you want to have negotiations where everybody can walk away feeling like they've won. He arguably coined the phrase win-win, win-win negotiation. That was his slogan. Because one of his messages, if you negotiate with somebody and you feel like for you to win, they have to lose, which is what people feel, which is a zero-sum game, then as a result, if you reach an agreement, 
there's a good chance. I mean, forgetting that it's, you know, right with karma and everything. There's a good chance if you pursue them too hard, don't give them a way to escape or save face, that the deal, the very deal you want will fall apart because the person will look for a way out because they'll be humiliated and you've got to include them in the possibility of success. So they work to make it a success. If that makes sense. Yeah. I see that all the time. And I bet something I try to incorporate. You always say if you include people in the process, then they'll have a stake in making the outcome a success. Wow. That's why it's good to go to people and ask what they think and ask for their help and tell them that you want their input. Because if they have input, then they'll think, hey, I'm part of that. I want that to succeed. I, I mean, that just touches on our some of our basic psychological needs of being heard and valued is that instead of that extraction, it's a win-win. And yeah. I want to hear you. His mind is brilliant. <laughs> what kind of what kind of negotiating was going on with the warriors back in his little friend group? One of his whole things is that he always said his power is based on perception. If you think you got it, you got it, even if you don't got it. If you don't think you got it, even if you got it, you don't got it. So it was always proving that you had power, even though you felt like you were weak and empowering people who felt powerless. And he grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, which was this kind of the parent. A lot of the parents were immigrants. There was old people, young people, every very diverse place. He had a little gang, like a lot of people, these gangs back then in Brooklyn. And it was called the Warriors. They had a clubhouse. They had jackets that were reversible. My, I always said my father was more Odysseus, you know, he was more uh, more Odysseus than Achilles. He was like talking his way in and out of things. So uh, he had this friend who became Larry King, who became very famous, but his name was Larry Zeiger. My father first met him because Larry told me the story. They'd both been assigned to work as a crossing guard in front of their like junior high school as punishment for something. And Larry was saying that this is terrible, it's, it's busy work, there's no need for a crossing guard. And my father disagreed and said, there's a lot of power in this position and you don't realize it. And to prove it, he took the little stop sign and he stopped traffic for like five minutes, creating a massive traffic jam. I think there was a fight on the side of the street between two drivers. They lost their position as crossing guards, but he proved his underlying principle, which is if you think you got it, you got it when it came to power. So they were involved in many things where they would get in trouble. And my, but Larry always said, your father was training to be a negotiator, which is he would get us into trouble and then talk us out of the trouble. And what, and the way he did this, one of his main lessons is, he quoted an Arthur Miller player, paraphrase it, which says, to understand the player, to understand the price, you have to understand the player, which is you can't know what something is worth to somebody if you can't see the world through their eyes. So he was learning a lot of different kinds of people. And when I was a kid, he was one of the people who helped set up the FBI's behavioral sciences unit that would basically, it was really, it became famous for serial killers, but his thing was like hostage negotiation, which is you, to understand what people are going to want, you have to know what they're motivated by and understand their needs and, and everything else. It's kind of about kind of a radical empathy where you put yourself in somebody else's skin because you might be offering them something that they don't want or they don't care about. You have to find out what they want to make any kind of agreement with them. Wow, fascinating. And I would have to assume that... So yeah, his idea about perception is power, if you have it. From what you observed, how important is empathy in that process? Because again, if we go back to, or what, what I'm thinking here is sometimes we chase power because we want power. Most people's perception of power is like, I can do what I want. But when you added that word empathy, to me, it gave a whole new twist on what power is. So 
as your father, as you learned negotiating from your father, how important was empathy in that process? Well, I think as a result of what he said, I became a writer and I write stories and nonfiction because I feel like I understand people's dilemmas and I have sympathy for them. And that he used that in a different way, which is how do you make agreements? How do you solve situations that seem unsolvable where you have two groups of people that are so opposed, there seems to be no solution. And the answer to that is you don't amass power so you could bully them and force them to do what you want, not because you're a good person, but because it will fail. If not immediately, it will ultimately fail. So you get in these conflicts that we have all over the world. The, the way to solve a problem is to sympathize and empathize with another person and try to figure out what they really want and what they really need and see how far you can go and include them on the process of finding a solution. I, from him, I'm not a great negotiator, you know? I'm just not him. I don't have his personality. And one of the reasons why he always was a great negotiator is he loved, it's fun. It's like a game and he loved doing it. Like I couldn't go buy a car by myself because he got all excited and he wanted to go <laughs> get involved in the negotiations with the car, you know? And, and anytime I have anything, he's, oh, you should do this. You know, it's fun for him. It's like a game. And it kept him entertained through his whole life. So I think what I got from him was the, the part about looking at other people and trying to imagine the world from their point of view. I feel like you got that right. 14 books later, New York Times bestsellers, is that your message obviously resonates with people. And perhaps that is your version of negotiating. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think as a writer, and it comes from him, I think, but it took me a while to figure it out, which is you always think, is this a story worth telling? Am I crazy in the way that I feel? And basically, I realized that I'm pretty much like everybody else. Like most people are very much in common, regardless of their background. And if I feel something, then millions and millions of other people are going to feel it too. I am not alone. I am united with just about everybody else around me. That's why you can be empathetic, because I honestly feel like if you put people that are opposed in each other's shoes, they would each behave the way the other behave. Most of it's like circumstantial. You know, you see, even with the hockey, you see people whose kids make the top team. They are, it might be completely smug about it, but if the next year their kids don't, they completely flip and take on the personality of the other, the person who feels like their kid's been hosed, you know? So it all has to do with the circumstances, which mean you can kind of figure out what people are thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I, it just makes me think again about your, your father's idea about detachment is like, if we detach ourselves to a certain degree from those situations you just talked about, we get more insight. We, we, we don't force our kids to, to go into this hockey camp or this hockey school because inside it's like an unmet need of our own that we're trying to yeah. offset on them. I, I feel like that power with empathy and being detached from circumstances, some really valuable lessons that we could all adapt a little bit more of. Yeah. And one of the things you always said, I always think of when I get all caught up about something, he always said, whatever I was worried about, he'd say, it's just a walnut in the batter of life. It's just <laughs> a blip on the radar screen of eternity. I, you know, his book was marketed as a business how-to book. It kind of helped create a genre. But it was really kind of, as I've read it when I'm older, it's really kind of a book of philosophy in a way. I mean, it's how to live a better life and how not to get caught up in all these things that don't really matter and how to stay detached and the thing is, the, the big thing is that if you do this, you actually become more successful. That's the surprising thing about it, which is so many people are bent on winning. And to win, you almost have to give up the idea of winning. It's your only chance of winning. 
Wow, yeah, it, it's it's so interesting. And I, I read somewhere that to extend to what you're saying here is kind of, the, again, the underbelly of this book to what you said is more than negotiating, but it was this idea to not take life so seriously and not to care as much. And I think that's just fantastic. Like you said, to, to win more, you got to care about not winning. Yeah, you got to give up on the idea of winning because it's a conventional idea and you're going to be disappointed in it. So on this idea of winning and your father and your book, I think I'm like many fathers. When I became a father, everything changed. My life was really centered around myself. I didn't realize that before kids. I mean, maybe it makes sense, maybe not. But when, when I had kids, I, I found myself becoming more sensitive, nurturing, patient, and everything revolves around my kids now. Often you have this vision that they would have the same relationship that I have with my father, which is really good. But then I find myself holding on to this outcome, like, oh, I need to do this. I need to do this. And I then get in the scarcity mode and maybe I'm not parenting to the best of my abilities. Right. If my kids in 20 to 40 to 50 years, whatever it is, if they wrote a book about my life, uh-huh. I would feel like it, I did it. <laughs> what point in your life or why did you decide to write this new book, The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, The World's Greatest Negotiators, which is about your father? What was happening that made you feel like now's the time I got to write this book? I felt like he's been in all my work and all my books, my father. He's a kind of an outsized personality. He's a very funny person. So a lot of times when I think of things, I immediately think of something he said or something or what his take on it would be all the time. My first book you said was Tough Jews about Jewish gangsters. It was really about my father. And it starts with my father and his friends hanging out at a diner in Beverly Hills, telling stories about gangsters who lived in their neighborhood when they were kids. And he's been a part of every one of my books, you know? So I felt like writing, I felt like it was almost like the source code, like this is the story underneath my other books. And even like the Jerry Weintraub book, which you mentioned, it's with this movie producer, great guy, movie producer, Jerry Weintraub, who, you know, did Oceans 11, 12, 13. He managed, promoted Elvis and Frank Sinatra. He's this larger than life guy. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Firm with Tom Cruise, there's this character in there named Joey Capps. I'm forgetting his name. He's like the heavy. That's Jerry. You can actually see what he looked like. Jerry's like a movie star, but he's so much like my father that I felt like I could understand Jerry partly because I, because of my father, because he trained me in understanding a certain kind of guy. So when I sat down to write this book, I mean, all you can ask my friends, I'm telling stories about my really funny stories about my father all the time. And during the quarantine, My mother died a few years ago and my father's 89 years old and I was sitting around thinking about him and I thought I'd like to see if I could connect all the dots and tell his story and get some detachment on it and figure out sort of what his, you know, teaching is. And my father's not a great, he's not a saint and he's not like he always adheres to everything he says. One of the themes of my life is he would get overly, he would care too much about things and go completely nuts. And those are the incidents of my life. And a stupid example is I had a softball team in uh, college with a bunch of friends, like in a beer league. And we jokingly made him the coach and he took over and he decided he was going to turn us into champions because he's a (laughs) crazy coach. And he went and was like, my mom is so mad. He's supposed to be writing another book. And instead he's watching every softball game, scouting every player in the league and designing all these very intricate shifts, which nobody did. I mean, now it's like a thing in baseball. And finally, we got in a big, huge fight because we were playing a game and it was a playoff game and we were ahead by a run with the bases loaded. And he called on us to intentionally walk the tied run. 
I said, I disagree on principle. It's morally wrong. You can't walk the tying run. We got in a huge fight. I fired him because I was technically the owner of the team. He stormed off and we pitched to that kid and he hit a grand slam home run and we got knocked out of the playoffs. So he was right in the end. But uh, that was an example of him actually taking what should have been a game and becoming like, you know, Captain Ahab searching the white whale. Did he say anything to you after you lost? Yeah. He yeah. says it all the time. Like, we'll be talking about something. He goes, hey, remember when you uh, fired me as coach of the North Shore Screen Doors? And a couple nights ago, John Madden, I heard, intentionally walked the tying run in a game. He's the manager of the Angels. And okay. people were, like, up in arms. And he intentionally walked the tying run. And then I think they went on to win the game. And he's like, this he feels like he was, you know, 30, 40 years ahead of his time. But that's his whole thing, because he's a basketball guy. Like, you make him think you're going this way, you go that way. It's always thinking out outside the box and doing things that are very unusual. Yeah, he sounds like such a fascinating individual. You mentioned about like he was influencing and had a, a hand at writing all your books, and this one was connecting the dots. After the process of engaging in writing, which I can assume is is quite consumes a lot of you, did it connect any dots for you that you didn't know about your relationship with your father after writing this book? Yeah, I mean sort of sat back and got to think about his own life and why he is the way that he is. I mean, I always envied his childhood. That's a big part of it because I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. Now, looking back, it was a great place to grow up in a great childhood and everything. But at the time, you know, he was telling stories about the Warriors and his friends, hoo-ha. Hoo-ha was called hoo-ha because they asked him a question one, and one night he said, who? And they repeated, and he said, huh? So he was hoo-ha. Inky, this kid who drank a whole bottle of ink. Isn't hoo-ha part of his negotiation tactic now, too? Yeah, always. Okay, sorry. Which is the most important questions in negotiation are, who, what? I don't understand. Can you help me? Can you talk me through that? It is, we'll try it. It's completely disarming. And they say, can you please help me? I don't get it. He always says, dumb is better than smart. And inarticulate can be more effective than articulate in a negotiation. But he had this very colorful childhood that seemed like a fantasy, you know, childhood. And sort of to see how he went, uh, his life, uh, and put it all together was sort of, in, sort of, I would say, a bit of enlightening for me. Yeah, it's, what, a, what a fantastic experience for a son to be able to go through that experience and have... Well, this- he used to travel a lot. He started out by giving seminars where he would teach negotiation and he would work for companies and he would have to run these seminars and he would, my brother, my sister, and I all had turns sort of being his assistant on the road. So you'd fly in these little tiny little planes with the open cockpit to little tiny regional airports and then drive all over the upper Midwest. And I see him give this, you know, his routine and deal with people and invent new material. And that was really interesting for learning what he did and learning about the country and learning about people. And my brother and I really insisted before we went that we have, you know, when your parents come, when your dad comes home from a trip, when you're a little kid, you want a present. But he couldn't give us a present all the time because he was always coming home. So finally, he decided that my brother would have a collection of hotel soap. So he just <laughs> come home with soap. And I had a collection of hotel keys. Oh. And that was the golden age of hotel keys. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, like a, a key that looked like a big pine tree or something. And then the Holiday Inns all had the green diamonds. And I was trying to get one from every state because he uh-huh. came. And then finally, my brother, trying to mess with me, took my hotel keys and dumped them all in a mailbox because they all had 
include postage to return to a oh. hotel. So my hotel key collection was wiped out in ten minute period. <laughs> I was gonna ask if you still had those, but <laughs> no. Oh, my brother's soap. I mean, finally, the whole room, this whole room reeked of this cheap soap. <laughs> and I used to say, how dirty would you have to be before you cracked into your hotel soap collection? Is the hotel soap collection still around? No, I think no. it just eventually melted. <laughs> yeah. So went back to heaven. <laughs> so your father just seems like this larger-than-life character who, it seems like he's just enjoying his journey on this earth. And he seems like a good teacher. And a lot of we talk on this podcast is a, a relationship with money and not not the, the size of a bank account, more so the, the relationship, unconscious or conscious, that we have with money. When you reflect on your father, what do you feel like his relationship with money was? And what did you learn either overtly or covertly around your relationship with money? Well, he was very generous. And he never had a great sense of money. So like if I asked him I needed some money, he would basically reach into his pocket and hand whatever was in there to me. And it might be like $100 and or it might be a dollar. You know, you never knew. And I think my mother really handled the money. And he kind of in a way messed me up because he made me believe that we were rich and we weren't. It was just that he was spending everything. He was living like a rich person. So when they say like live well and die, you know, yeah. He, he enjoyed the money that he made. He has enjoyed it. He was very generous with people, with friends and spending money. And he wasn't a great person at like making long-term investments or it's funny. One of his, one of the stories he told me that I always thought was so funny about his own father was his father owned a little factory in lower Manhattan, like, you know, in the 1930s that made the bindings for the inside of hats. He had like a heart problem. And those days when you had a, they couldn't do anything for you. They give you nitroglycerin pills and tell you to just relax, retire. So at age like 60, he sold this business and he had some money. So he went to my father and said, what should I do with this money? I want to invest it. And my father said, let me ask around. And he came to him and said, you should invest in IBM. This is like early, you know. And my, my grandfather said, well, what do they make? What's their inventory? And he said, what do they sell? He goes, information. And my grandfather said, oh. Herbert, that is a scam. We're <laughs> being scammed. So instead, he invested his money in JL Steel in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, which wound up, you know, going bankrupt and being worth absolutely nothing. But it was the worldview of that generation, which was steel. Mm -hmm. You know, you can never lose money by investing in steel. And the idea of investing in, inf in an information company was a scam. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't, you know, he was never great at thinking long term about the market. His thing was always. People. People, yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, is like there definitely is this hyper focus on being financially responsible. And I, I don't know if this is being responsible, but like sometimes we're hyper focused on the long term and we forget about the people. And when you look at the, the science around happiness, one of the number one indicators to living a good life is connection with people. Yeah. And so... I often think when we navigate this money story that we all have is what is the outcome? Is it a lot of steel or a lot of money or is it to live a good life? Well, he really had a thing like as far as investing and saving, he did that to some extent, but he had this idea that you don't know what's going to happen mm. and you don't know when you're going to die and you can't really plan for anything. Mm -hmm. He always said, we're not, none of us own in this world. We're all renters. I saw that and it made me think of money. 
We never own money. We just borrow money. Right. And he always said, when you go to a store, don't think of yourself as buying a product. Think of yourself as selling money. Mm. You know, so it was like this idea that, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So you should put your money to the things that are of good use now while you can. And you can always make more money. That was one of the things he said. Like, you can always, you don't worry about that. You can always make more money, but you can't get somebody's life back. You can't fix a relationship that's ruined necessarily. Total. Oh, it, it sounds like he took this idea of detachment to this money and this idea of money's not the power. He's the power. Well, Super that was his thing, which is it's not the money, it's the money, which is the money itself is meaningless. It's that it represents something. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a, becomes a choice. Yeah, wow. Sticking with your father and your book here, it seems to me, your dad's message, <laughs> this idea of nego- or you can negotiate anything, which we talked about, there's a big underbelly to that. But there's also this idea of, I think we kind of alluded to this, like you can negotiate anything or you can question many things, question whether it's authority, the way things are, social norms. Like a month or so ago, Todd Cashin was on, on our podcast and he wrote, recently wrote a book called The Art of Insubordination, mm-hmm. which is like, how it's do you, to, yeah, and his concept is to be the principled rebel, which is doing things in a principled manner, but questioning authority or the social norms. Now this book came out in 2022. I feel like your father was the original <laughs> principled rebel. So my question to you is what did you observe, learn, or what lessons did your father pass to you regarding the art of you can negotiate anything or this idea of questioning authority is healthy? That's one of his big things that I did take away, which is one of his favorite quotes is always, do not put your trust in princes. And his whole thing is about you can negotiate anything means you can question authority that, and he, he take it from the Mac big to the small to make the example. So when asked about negotiation, he'd say the record of the first negotiation is in the Bible. And it's when God is going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, what if I could find these things? He doesn't say God, Abraham doesn't say, God, that's a stupid idea. That's crazy. He uses his weakness to appeal to God's power. He says, great idea, God, another great idea. But what if I can come up with 50 good men? Would you spare the city? And God says, if you, and he negotiates, he gets God all the way down to 10. I can't find the 10 good men, but that's not the point. He's able to negotiate. He's questions the ultimate authority through the ultimate power differential to negotiate with God. And he uses that all the way to, you know, the big box stores that we go to when I was a kid, the Sears, the department stores, where people would never think to negotiate because that's an authority like God. And he'd say they have these big, prices and there were big block letters and it was like they'd been put there by the big printer in the sky. You can't question it. But he'd say basically that price is arbitrary. It was created by a bunch of people sitting in a room randomly setting a price. And it's itself the product of a negotiation. And he said anything that is a product of a negotiation is itself negotiable. And then he gives different ways that you can start to negotiate for those things. Now people think, oh I don't want to that's a pain or I don't want to look stupid, or it's embarrassing, makes me look cheap, or whatever. But his thing is, it's like a game. See, to him, it was like fun. You don't look at it that way. You look at it as a game. And, you know, basically, he'd say, to be successful, you have to be willing to learn with ambiguity. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of people don't have the stomach for it. So if they're, like, negotiating with a house, they'll just go ahead and make an offer to end it because they're uncertain and they want to know what's going to happen. And that's okay, but you're going to pay for that. 
Like to have this certainty is a luxury that you're going to pay money for. But if you can sit and do nothing, that's a big thing is just be willing to do nothing. Just wait, see what happens. And there's so many times in my life when I was an anxious kid and I wanted to do this right away. It's like, just wait a couple of days. They didn't go away. They're going to come back. Just wait a couple of days. And it's that ability to sit there with the ambiguity that then results in usually a better deal. And also the result of that is the other side makes, it feels like it got you to pay as much as you could. So they're happy too. But it all goes to the questioning of authority is something he'd very much, you know, that's, that's where, that's the basis of all this stuff that goes back to the warriors when he's a kid, which is a famous story that he tells. I won't go into the details, but him and his friends acted very, very badly in high school and they were going to be expelled from the school. And my father sitting with Larry King and this guy, Brazi Abadi sat down with the principal. My father said, you're right. We deserve to be expelled. And we're never going to get back in school again. And we're going to be screwed, but you're never going to work again. You know, he's like saying it to the principal's eyes because we didn't because we did this horrible thing and you shouldn't be able to see from the beginning what we were doing, but you just took our word for it. And we are famous incorrigibles. We've been in all kinds of trouble. So if you expel us, there's going to be a hearing. And at the hearing, all this is going to come out and we are never going to go to school again. <laughs> you are never going to work again. And the guy said, okay, let's just, you know, ultimately he said, let's just drop the whole thing. Just, get out of here and I don't want to see you again. And so that was like an example of one questioning authority and two empathy, seeing, seeing what this guy was going to have mm. to deal with. If he went ahead with this plan, it was going to be a lose, lose instead of like a wash. Wow. I don't know if you had the opportunity to do this, but interview some of his school teachers and well, the, the problem is the teachers now would be in their hundreds. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, but I, all through my life, I've met all of his friends and I've heard that was one of the amazing things when my dad would tell these elaborate stories about growing up and they're like bedtime stories and you do all the voices of all the different people. Oh. And then when I met Larry King, who was his best friend, he came to our house and he told the same stories and did the same voices. And Larry had this radio show on when I was a kid. It was a great show. It was on from midnight to 5 a.m. or 11 to 4 a.m. in Chicago. He would have a guest and then he would just talk. And he would tell all these stories about my father as a kid. You know, of course, it made my father's childhood seem romantic. He was being talked about as a kid on the radio late at night. You know, like one, one story is about how he confessed the police were looking for somebody and they made him go to the police station because they fit a description and my father just confessed to every crime they had open on the books <laughs> just to see what would happen. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I, I would love to hear more of these stories, but I want to be respectful of your time. I want to thank you to you and your dad for telling this story. We all have, I'm bringing this back into the theme of my podcast, but we all have these money stories and these money scripts that drive a lot of our behaviors and someone who, I've been in the finance industry for for a long time now, and lots of mine is has. Hopefully, there's more has than is, but around this idea of like following the social narrative of being responsible financially, which to me is just socially constructed. And I I hear these stories from your father who go against this authority of get a job, chase promotions, you know. Saving your 401, I don't know what's the U.S., 401-OK? Or no. Yeah, 401-K. Yeah, in Canada it's different. But anyways, do all these prudent things and then you're successful. What I love about this conversation today is like this detachment from whatever it is, money, hockey, whatever it is, this detachment is so important and just having fun. It sounds like your dad just had so much fun. And for myself, I hope I can 
embody some of your father's fatherhood elements to my kids and embody today and live today and not take life too seriously. Yeah. Well, one thing he always said is uh, nose that can hear is where two that can smell confusing to people. But he went, he, what he meant is there's value in being different and being strange. Mm. And when I was a kid, he was very concerned of, you know, peer pressure and just going along with other people just because you don't want to stand out. And his thing was always, if you can stand out. That's the key to success is to be different. One thing, this is not from him, but from me, as far as what you said about money, because it's interesting. I always looked at, you know, in the Hitchcock movies, they had a thing called the MacGuffin. Do you know that phrase? No. So if you watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie, they're always chasing something. A stolen briefcase. You ever see Pulp Fiction? Mm -hmm. Remember they have that stolen briefcase mm -hmm. with like mm -hmm. the That's the MacGuffin. Oh, okay. It doesn't do anything except motivate the people and move them. That's how you should look at money. Everyone's chasing it, but it's not the point. The point is the chase, not the money. And if you could do that, then you could, you know, have fun. Oh, that's so good. And sometimes if you're thinking about that briefcase too much, you miss the entire right. Maybe this is your answer, but I, I ask everyone this last question. Say you're now at end of life. You can be anywhere in the world that brings you peace or a sense of ease, calmness. And you're sitting on this front porch doing one of your favorite things, I suppose, is writing. But you decide to write your, your kids' kids, if they have them, a letter about what you learned on having a healthy relationship with money. What would a theme to that letter be? A healthy relationship to money? Yeah. Money, life. I think it would just be, you know, that in the end, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters as much as it enables you to live. But beyond that, it doesn't really matter. And too much money is just as bad as too, not enough money. Oh, that is a good one. You're making my mind go in so many different places. <laughs> well, Rich, thank you so much for joining me today and, and sharing a bit about your story and your books. For the book coming out on May 10th, yeah. Is it The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, The World's Greatest Negotiator? Where can people find it? Where can people find more information about you and any other last message you want to give to the audience? I have a website. It's not the best website, but it's my website. It's called authorrichcohen.com. Only call that because I had a website. Somebody bought richcohen.com and tried to sell it to me for a lot of money. That's <laughs> nuts to me. So anyway, authorrichcohen.com and then Amazon you know, Barnes and Noble, whatever, or, you know, local bookstores. I'm not sure the situation with the book in Canada, but it should be the same book in Canada, same publisher. Any parting words about your father book? No, just the key to life is to care, but not that much. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. Without a top, my wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sail.